Amen. Have a seat. And good morning. Good morning. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayou City Tomball. And as we get going, it is a new year, 2021. We are here together. Turn to someone beside you and say, you look amazing in 2021. Turn to someone beside you. Yes, yes. So glad we are here this morning together. Uh, New year, and we are starting a new series today. We are studying the book of Nehemiah together. Um, And so if you have a Bible um, or a phone with an app with the Bible on it, get to Nehemiah chapter 1. We are going to be starting our study of the book of Nehemiah, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to get into it in a little bit. I'm not going to... I'm not going to steal my thunder, so i got a plan. So I'm just going to read it, pray for us one more time, and we will jump in. Amen? Amen. Oh, it's going to be good. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for a new year. Thank you for a new year to start um, afresh. And Lord, there are so many things right now in our culture, so many things right now in, in, our, in our world, in our nation's capital that um, have caused many of us to have broken hearts, have many of us to, to reach out and say, Lord, is there, is there a solution to these um, major, major problems that our nation is facing, that we are facing. And Lord, thank you that your word gives us the solution to the world's greatest problems. Thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have called us to come to you so that you might provide the solutions that we need. So Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, you would open up our hearts. You would help us to be the type of people we need to be so that we can do the things you want to do in this world. So Lord, I pray that as we open up and study the book of Nehemiah together as a church, you would help us to be your kingdom people that build what you want built. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, your perspective determines the possibilities of your life. How you see the world will shape and determine what you think is possible in your life. Proverbs 29, 18 says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. You need the right vision if you want to accomplish the right things in this world. In fact, you need the right vision if you want to do anything of significance. Steve Jobs famously said this uh, when he was trying to recruit um, the executive from Pepsi uh, at a... um, 
John Sully to work for him at Apple, he says to, to John Sully this, do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? What a great line. Do you want to work for Pepsi and sell sugar water the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? See, if you have a new vision for where you want to go in life, you can accomplish new things. Martin Luther King Jr. inspired the nation and millions throughout history with his dream speech, a dream that his kids would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. It is great vision that unites a people in a great new direction. Great vision can inspire great action. And we need in this day and age, in this, this culture, this climate, people with a God-sized vision for the brokenness of the world. Because if people have a God-sized vision for what God can do in the world, God can rebuild what was broken, what has been broken. And right now in our culture, right now in 2021, I think a lot of us had a lot of hopes for what 2021 would bring. A restoration economically, restoration um, with, with, a, with a, uh, a vaccine for the virus, restoration for all sorts of things, even politically, maybe a new start to our new year. But as we looked across the nation, we've seen a lot, a lot of brokenness remaining present, even in 2021. And as we have been praying about what we need to discuss, what we need to be about in 2021. Uh, we have spent a lot of time praying about our church and what we need to study together. And early back in, in August, as, as I was seeing everything that was going on culturally back in August, God put two books in front of me to, to spend my time on. One was 2 Timothy, the other was the book of Nehemiah. In 2 Timothy, you see a young pastor who is who is called by Paul to go to this young church in Ephesus and help rebuild by, by rebuilding some things that have gone wrong there. And in the book of Nehemiah, what you see is a man who goes to a broken city to rebuild torn down spiritual and physical walls. And as I was praying, I, I really felt this spring we needed to, to move into the book of Nehemiah. Well, part of the issue, I don't know if you know how uh, Bayou City works as, a, as an overall church is that, is that we choose together the books that we teach together. We, we do that in kind of a global fashion. And so I was praying about the book of Nehemiah and really feeling like God was leading me that direction. Uh, and then other people are praying too. Just know that you, you live at a praying church. You attend a praying church. And several of the lead pastors, Johnny, Icky, and, and AK, um, were praying about what, what God would lead us to in the spring. And our community group pastors were praying about where God would lead us in the spring. And wouldn't you know, independently, all of these people came together and, and they said, you know what? I feel like Nehemiah is the book that's gonna lead us in this next chapter of our, of our time as a church. Now, I don't know if you believe that this spirit works in people's lives, but we do. And one of the ways that the spirit works is bringing unity in vision and direction. And so to see God work in each one of these people's lives together, say, no, I think, I think this is the right direction. I think this is the next step. I, I was actually extremely inspired to say, all right, Lord, you are wanting us to study this book, but, but why? Why? Well, Nehemiah lays itself out in, in two major sections. There's 13 chapters. Chapters one through six talks about rebuilding a vision of a people, rebuilding a wall. And chapters uh, seven through 13 talks about rebuilding a people. 
He rebuilt the wall in 52 days. It takes a lot longer to rebuild a people. I'll tell you what, the construction project of a simple structure is a lot easier to reconstruct people into who they need to be. That's true in life. And the book of Nehemiah is gonna show us the process. And the book of Nehemiah focuses on a man who goes to a broken city and helps to rebuild what was destroyed. And if there's anything that we need in this season, it's knowledge, it's wisdom, it's empowerment from God to rebuild what has been broken. So you gotta know the historical context. Many of us read the Bible and we focus a lot of our energies on the New Testament so we don't necessarily know what happened in the Old Testament. What was going on that put, us, put Israel in the situation where they had a broken wall and a broken city? Well, here's the context. The nation of Israel was set by God and they were supposed to be ones that spotlighted to the world what it looked like to be God's people. They were meant to be a, a shining light, a city of... Uh, of uh, of people that were a kingdom of priests to represent God to the world. And as they were going along in their history, they came to this region of land where God gave them the promised land, this nation of Israel, where they would set up rulership and from there God would bless them and they would be blessed to bless the world. And so he brought the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt to the nation of Israel and eventually gave them um, three kings as a unified nation. The first king was Saul, the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. And under Solomon, the nation thrived. They were a, the, the, a wealthy nation, a powerful nation. <clears throat> Solomon was blessed mightily with wisdom, and so they're leading the nation well. But, but the problem is Solomon's sons began rebelling from the call of God. And so one son took 10 tribes with him to lead from the north. That became the northern kingdom. One son was split to the southern kingdom and left only two tribes with him. And so the nation became split, a divided nation. No longer were they a unified kingdom, but they were divided. As you study the, the history of Israel, the northern kingdom had no good kings and the southern kingdom had a few good kings. And so prophets all through the Old Testament go to the nation and say, if you guys don't repent, if you guys don't return to the Lord, I will take you away from the land that I've given you. I will bring judgment upon you and you see all of these conversations through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this is what's happening. If you don't return, I will, I will take you out of the land that I have given you. In 2 Chronicles 36, it describes what happened this way. It says, the nation was taken to Babylonian captivity. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his officials, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, brought them to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. In 722, the kingdom of Assyria took the northern kingdom away to, um, to slavery. And then in 586 BC, the kingdom of Babylon came in and took the people captive. You can read about this in the, the book of Daniel. You see this process of them taking the people away from the promised land, taking them off, making them slaves. And it says, interestingly here, they broke down the house of God, meaning they destroyed the temple, and they also broke down the walls. They destroyed the walls. The temple was the place of worship. The walls were there for protection. And so the kingdom of Babylon came to Jerusalem, ransacked the city, and left everything in devastation. And 2 Chronicles 36, 20 says this. 
And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to the king and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Historically, there was the nation of Assyria that came and took the northern kingdom, the nation of Babylon that took the southern kingdom. But God promises that there will be someone that comes in and restores temple worship and brings people back to Jerusalem. See, God did not abandon his people. He wanted to discipline his people and eventually restore them back. And so the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah describe the process of rebuilding what was broken. In the book of Ezra, you see Zerubbabel come back and start rebuilding the temple. And they start rebuilding the temple, excuse me, between 538 and 515 BCE. God predicted that they would spend 70 years in Babylon. And almost to the date, uh, Zerubbabel comes back and starts rebuilding and he rebuilds the temple and it was completed in 515 BC. And then for the next 80 years, there's no more work done. And then Ezra comes back with another group of people, start rebuilding the temple, start, start helping to continue the, rebuilding the worship of God. And at that moment, 13 years after Ezra had come to start, continue the rebuilding of the temple, Nehemiah hears how the work is going in the land. So Nehemiah hears these words from chapter one, about 140 years after the destruction of the temple. 140 years had passed where the nation had been destroyed and everything had been ransacked. The temple had been rebuilt, but the city still lay in ruins. And the question that the book of Nehemiah answers is this. How can God rebuild what was broken so badly? And we see a person that God uses. God chooses to use people to rebuild what's broken. And what we're gonna see in this first chapter is this. Who does God use to rebuild a broken city? He uses a broken person who takes responsibility and humbly steps forward. Who does God use to rebuild a broken city? A broken person who takes responsibility and humbly steps forward. Let's read again in Nehemiah chapter one. It says this, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month, a month of Chislev. Chislev is between November and December. <clears throat> and it says in the month of Chislev, he asked Hanani, one of his brothers that came from Judah. This is the, Judah is the region where the temple exists, the, where the temple is located. He came and he asked about the remnant there. And verse three says, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile are in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. He says, here's the problem. There were some people that went to start rebuilding, but the rebuilding stopped. There were some people that went to start helping, but their work stopped and they were, the wall is broken down. And here's, here's the problem with the wall. The wall was the physical protection of the city. You built the wall to protect the city from foreign enemies coming in. If you didn't have a wall, you didn't have protection. It's like your lock on your door. Uh, if you don't have a lock on the door, maybe security system, 
It's likely that someone can break in and wreak havoc. There's, there's not protection around your home. What was needed was the city to be protected from enemies and their walls were torn down. And here's the truth. The walls of a nation protect the city from invasion. The walls of the nation protect the city from invasion. A broken wall meant the city was left unprotected. But more than just the physical walls, there was a spiritual element here as well. Because the physical wall wasn't rebuilt, it showed that the people had stopped rebuilding where, what God had put them in. They had stopped rebuilding their city. They stopped rebuilding what God had given to them to lead and steward. The broken walls also represented the broken walls of the people. They had not fully returned to God. There was brokenness amidst them. And here's what Nehemiah saw. He saw that the walls were broken and his response was to fast and weep for the city. Although the city had laid in ruins for over 140 years, he saw an old news in a new way. He saw the brokenness in a new way. He saw the problem like God sees the problem. You know what a broken person is? It's someone whose heart breaks for the things that break God's heart. A broken person isn't someone that just says, hey, there's problems out there, that's bad, someone ought to do something. No, no, a broken person, a biblical broken person has a heart that breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. Well, how do we have that type of heart? Well, the first is this, we have to see correctly. We actually have to identify the right problem because if we don't identify the right problem, we will have the wrong solution. So when a surgeon is going to make create surgery on you, they're going to cut on you. What do you want that surgeon to do? To rightly diagnose the issue. You don't want them to start cutting randomly, right? You want them to cut appropriately what the real issue is. And so what he's saying first is that Nehemiah sees correctly. He correctly identifies the problem. Well, what are the problems that are facing our nation? Pardon me. Well, if we were to list them, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. We're hoping that the, 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 the virus vaccine will help, but we're also in an economic crisis. And you lay on top of that the issues of this past week where you see a political climate that's very combative. And I know as a church, we are to shy away from making political statements. And I'll tell you this, we will not ever back a political party. But I think we can all look at the events of this past week and say, there's a severe brokenness. There's a severe brokenness in our culture and our climate that has made us unable to have dialogue, but moved to violence. And that's, that's tragic. That's tragic. As I was watching the news this week, my heart broke over our nation. And I hope your heart broke over our nation. We have to see the problems of our world correctly. And what does Nehemiah do? What does he do? Does he begin pointing the finger and blame? Hey, you should have done this. Why didn't you do this? What? He doesn't do that. What does Nehemiah do? Verse four. It says that he bent his knee, he was greatly troubled, and he wept and fasted and prayed for days. 
Charles Swindoll says this, Nehemiah was a man who fought on his knees. And the first place Nehemiah goes when he sees the brokenness of our world, he hits his knees. What do you do? When you see the brokenness going across our culture, what do you do? When you see uh, economic crisis or political crisis or social unrest, what do we do? do? Are we ones that move to Twitter? Do we hit Twitter or do we hit our knees? Do we hit Facebook or do we hit our knees? Do we move to complaint or do we hit our knees and beg God to do something great? Because when you see the size of the problem, you know that the size of the solution has to be immense. And our culture has really big problems, amen? Our culture has huge issues. And let me tell you what, no one sitting in this room and no one sitting in the room of the Capitol individually has the ability to fix the brokenness of our world. They don't. There is one king who sits on his throne and he does. His name is Jesus Christ. And so instead of pointing fingers at someone who should have done something differently, Nehemiah hits his knees and begs God, will you do something in our world? Will you do something in our culture? The greatest men and women that God uses spend more time on their knees than on their feet. Nehemiah hits his knees and begins pleading with God, will you do something? And he prays and he fasts. Prayer is our conversation with God. Fasting is when you sacrifice something to seek, God, to seek God's hand to move. And it could be food, it could be comfort, it could be any number of things that you choose, to, you choose to sacrifice and intentionally spend that time to ask and beg God. The, the way food works is this, is every time you feel that hunger pain, that's a reminder of your desperate need for God. So one of the things I'm actually gonna challenge us to do for the next two weeks is to do the thing that Nehemiah did. Is when you see the brokenness of the world correctly, that our hearts would break like God's heart breaks and that we would hit our knees in prayer and fasting, begging for God to move. And so my challenge for us is this, that we would join together as Bayou City Tomball for the next two weeks for prayer and for fasting. Private renewal always precedes public restoration private renewal, that we individually, we would have broken hearts that say, God, will you do something in our land and our culture? And so I'm going to challenge you for the next two weeks, would you be willing to give up a meal a day or a meal a week, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever your doctor would be comfortable with you doing, or maybe a comfort? Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's watching a show. Would you fast with us as a church for two weeks and that you wouldn't just not do something and then be uh, angry that you can't do said thing. <laughs> That's oftentimes what fasting does. Like you just get miserable. Like I would do this for you, Lord. See, I did it. You know, like that's not what we're talking about. That you would replace that time with a concerted effort to seek God's face and to seek his hand. And we're gonna have prayer points at the end of our service this morning. And those hopefully will even guide you it's some things to pray. As well, if you subscribe to our newsletter, uh, we're gonna push out some prayer points to join us over these next two weeks with us. Would you consider joining with us, fasting and praying, doing the things that Nehemiah did 
to see God rebuild a broken city. So the first thing that we see that Nehemiah does, his heart breaks for the things that break God's heart. But secondly, and I love this, he didn't point his finger in blame, but he takes responsibility. He didn't blame people of the past for his current circumstances, but takes the blame for the current circumstances. If fasting was challenging to you, let me just tell you what, this next part will wreck us. It says this, verse five, and I said to the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant of steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I offer now and I pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants. So he's saying, I've prayed for the people of Israel. And if you have a pencil or a pen and a Bible, I would encourage you to underline these next couple phrases. How does he pray? The first thing is he says this, I'm confessing the sins of the people Israel which have sinned against you. The first way he prays is this, I confess the sins of the nation. I confess their hundreds of years of sins before you. I confess all of the past sins. I say those were wrong. I confess the sins of the past. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Wait a minute. The city was destroyed before Nehemiah was born. You tracking? The destruction came before he was even out of the womb. And he confesses all of their sin. And not only does he confess all the sin of the past, you see what he does next? He says, I and my father's house have sinned too. He takes ownership of the sin of everyone. And he doesn't point out that those people did bad things back there and we're all suffering for it. He puts himself right in the middle of the problem. He says, I'm part of the problem too. There's a book that came out uh, years ago by Agatha Christie uh, and it's, it's called Murder on the Orient Express. And in the book, uh, you have the, the, the detective, Perot, who's trying to solve the mystery, so trying to solve the problem that's going on and who committed this murder, who did this wrong. And so he's interviewing all these people on uh, the train and I'm gonna ruin the end of the story for you. At the end of the book, it finds out that it wasn't that one person committed the murder. They were all co-conspirators. And together, they were all Create, they all together created the problem. They all were part of the murder. And when it comes to the human condition, it's not that one person out there did something bad and we're all suffering for it. We're all part of the problem. The bad news of the gospel is this. We're all sinners and we're all part of the major problem. And, and here's the deal. Every one of us wants to blame someone else for our current circumstances. We all do. And that's normal because that's what Adam did in the garden, right? He's in the garden and God says, what happened? And what does Adam say? The woman you gave me, gave me fruit and I ate. I'm a victim here, right? He says, God, 
I know you're confronting me on my sin, but it's either uh, her fault or your fault. The woman you gave me, gave it. And I, he tries to deflect responsibility. Every one of us tries to do that. We don't own up. But listen, the people that God uses take responsibility for the sins of others. The people that God uses take responsibility for the sins of others. They don't pass blame, but they take responsibility. You wanna be used mightily by God? We have to be people that take responsibility for the mistakes of others. What does Moses do? Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the 10 commandments from God. He is having this amazing quiet time on the top of the mountain with God. He comes down and what are the people doing? They have built a golden calf and they are worshiping a golden calf. And God says, you know what, Moses? I can wipe all of them out and start over with you. And what does Moses, Moses say? No. And he stands as a mediator in their place saying, God, I am standing here begging you, please do not destroy them. David. David, great king of the nation of Israel. Saul was a corrupt, vicious king. And when David is rising to power, all these people are willing to kill Saul so that David can rise. And what does David do? He refuses to blame the past for the current circumstances. He refuses to raise a sword against Saul. He says, no, no one will raise a sword against Saul. In fact, he even cares for Saul's kids and grandkids. He takes responsibility, he doesn't point the blame. It's what Jesus did on the cross. As he's being nailed to the cross and people are hurling insults at him, what does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And the Bible says that he became sin for us. In fact, all sin was put on him and he absorbed the full weight of our sin willingly. Kids, do you want to have the respect of your parents? Do you want to be given more autonomy? Do you want to be given more authority? If you are under the age of 18, you're like, you know what? I wish my parents would just give me more autonomy and more authority. Just raise your hand. You just, you want that? Okay, you're a kid and you're like, no, I want less autonomy and less authority. Well done, parents. Okay, your parents, would, your kids want to be dependent. When I was a youth, I wanted to have more autonomy and more authority. You know how you get it? you show responsibility. And what is maturity? What is true maturity? True maturity is taking on the responsibility of the lives of others. That's maturity. True biblical maturity means I will take on the responsibility of the lives of others. Their mistakes, I will absorb them. So every time I go home, I'm sorry children, my children are here. But I did this as a kid too, so it's not just them, it's me too. As soon as there's a mess in the house and mom or dad comes home and says, who did this? What is the answer of every child? Whoever it was, it wasn't me, right? Do you even know what I'm talking about? No, but I know it wasn't me. <laughs> it's our standard statement, it wasn't me. At work, as, a, as an employee in your work, when something goes wrong, what do we all do? We, yeah, I see that that was a major problem that that person's responsible for. Like, it is rare 
that an employee would say, you know what, I'm going to take the hit for that. Husbands, when your wife makes a mistake, whose fault is it? Clearly hers, right? Like, wives, when your husband makes a mistake, whose fault is it? Clearly his. We have a, a tendency to always blame others and make ourselves look good in that light. Nehemiah didn't do that. Mature Christians don't do that. Mature Christians take the responsibility of the sins of others. Here's what Paul says to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present her pure and blameless without spot or blemish. Husbands, how did Jesus present the church without wrinkle, spot, or blemish? How did he do that? He pays for our sins. That's what he does. He absorbs the cost for us. Husbands, how do you present your wives without spot or blemish or wrinkle? You absorb the cost of her sins. Not in a way that you pay for her sins. Like not, not, you, don't, you don't make her right before God. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying you suffer for her mistakes. Lovingly. Willingly. You suffer for her to make her more lovely. That's what husbands do. And that's what you want your leaders to do. You want your leaders to step in in front and don't point out all the problems, but take responsibility for the problems so that you can move forward. Every time uh, you get a new job in a new position, you are painted as the hero because you are there to fix the problems of the past. But here's the problem with that. When you make yourself the hero, eventually you'll become the villain. Because then you'll create problems that everyone else points to, to blame. True maturity is we don't blame and we don't put ourselves as the hero of the story. There is a hero of the story and it's not us. And here's what Nehemiah does. He takes responsibility of everyone's sins and then what does he do? He pleads for God to fulfill his promises. Look at verse eight. He says, we have acted corruptly, verse seven, against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. But remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast to the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather you and bring you to the place that I have chosen to make your name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed. What does he do? He doesn't say, God, there's lots of problems out here and I'm ready to fix them. He doesn't do that. He doesn't present himself as the hero. What does he do? He says, everything has gone in a terrible direction. I am part of the problem. But God, if you return, you will restore. If you forgive us, you can restore us to rebuild the city. God's people never put themselves as the hero of the story. They point to the true hero. 
We're not the hero of the story. None of us are. I'm not, you're not. None of us are the hero of the story. We are supporting cast. So when I was a kid, I used to watch the TV show uh, Batman and Robin, like the original one with like Adam West. They're in tights running around. It's hilarious, right? And inevitably during the show, something would happen. Robin would try to save the day. And so he would go out and be like, okay, Batman, I'm gonna go out and fix this problem. So he would battle Catwoman or Penguin or whatever. And, and what would happen? He would end up tied up on a thing being about to be chopped in half. Like that would happen every episode. Why? Because the name of the show is Batman. Right? You're not the hero, buddy. You're supporting cast. Like, so as long as you're siding up with Batman, you guys are going to fight and win. But as soon as you go out solo, you're going to lose. That is true for every one of us, people. When we move into culture, we are never the hero. There is one hero, Jesus Christ. He has the solution to our nation's problems. He has a solution to our, to our financial struggles. He has the solutions to every one of the issues we face in life. And if we put ourselves as the hero, we're missing the hand of God. And if we're missing the hand of God, there's no way we can accomplish the things that God wants to do. And so who does God use? A broken person who takes responsibility. What does it mean to take responsibility? Is I admit my sin and I seek God as the Savior. We are all sinners and there is one Savior. And the third piece that you see him do is this. He humbly steps forward. He says, I'm not the best, but I'm willing to be used. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. What does it look like to humbly step forward? It means we have deep dependence, but we know our influence. It means we have deep dependence on God and his power, but we know our influence. It says, I am praying night and day, God, will you do something where your hand move, please, God. And what you see all throughout the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He's a man deeply dependent on God. But the second piece is this, he knows his influence. He was cupbearer to the king. Was a cupbearer? Well, when wine would be brought before the king, someone would need to try it to see if it was poisoned. And if it was poisoned, the cupbearer would do his job, which was drink the cup and die. That was his responsibility. He was, it was a disposable job, right? If you're good at it, either I don't get poisoned or you die and king lives, right? So that's the goal. So he had a place of trust with the king but he did not have permanence, right? He was cupbearer to king. Let me tell you this. If we want to make an impact in this culture, in this city, there is always a reason that we can point to why we are not qualified and our position isn't enough. All of us. 
I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, well, if I had this other position or if I had this other influence, if I, if I was a little bit taller, if I was a little bit shorter, if I went to the right high school, if I had the right opportunity, if I had the right connections, every one of us could point to some reason why God can't use us and we have some sort of inadequacy that, we, that, that removes us from being able to be used by God. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He sees his position as an opportunity. He says, although I am only a cupbearer, I am in the presence of the king. So I do have a level of influence. And I'm going to pray and seek God's face. And maybe God might do something. God in all times is looking for men and women who are willing to be used where they are. Ezekiel 22, 30 says this, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not destroy it. But I found no one. St. Chronicles 16.9 says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless to him. See, God is looking for people God is looking for people that are willing to say, I'm, I'm broken, my heart breaks for the things that break God's heart. I'm willing to take responsibility that I am a sinner, I'm part of the problem, and God, I need you as a solution. And ones that say, I am willing to humbly step forward and be used by you. You know what I hope happens over this next semester? is that God makes us those types of people. That private renewal of us individually would precede public rebuilding. And there's a lot of rebuilding that has to take place over this time. Part of it is rebuilding this community, this church, Bayou City Tomball. COVID and everything else have had a tremendous impact on us as a church community. And we need every person here to play a part in rebuilding what has been broken. Amen? There are marriages that have been broken during this climate. As people are stressed and, 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 and financial issues and all sorts of things are rising to the surface, there are many broken marriages that need to be restored and we need God's people to come around and help. See, we need God to do the things that only God can do to rebuild what's been broken. And my hope is that we can be a church that steps into the brokenness and brings healing because we bring Jesus. Not because I'm great and not because you're great, but because Jesus is great. And if people meet Jesus, then marriages can be healed. If people meet Jesus, then the hurts can be fixed. If people meet Jesus, then lives can be rebuilt and restored. And in order for people to meet Jesus, there's a way that God chooses to use. People to step into their lives and make the introduction. He needs people like you and me to say, I'm not just gonna sit in Susa and hope that someone does something over there. He needs people that say, 
I'm willing to step out of my comfort zone and step into the lives of others and maybe, maybe God might use me. Pray for what you want God to do and be ready to be the solution to that prayer. So what I wanna do for the rest of our time together is actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us through a time of prayer. We're gonna sing one song in closing, or one song, and then I'm gonna come up as you prepare your hearts, and I wanna lead us through several prayer points to prepare us for this next season. So would you close your eyes in prayer? Worship team, would you come forward? They will lead us in one song, and then we'll be led through several prayer points. Lord, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. And Lord, thank you that you have used a man, not a perfect man, not a sinless man, not an impressive man with an impressive resume. You used a very ordinary man to be part of rebuilding what was broken. And Lord, I pray that our church community here at Bayou City Tomball can be part of that rebuilding process here in Tomball. And Lord, there's a lot of areas of brokenness nationally, locally, individually. And Lord, what we need is renewal. What we need is revival. What we need is your spirit to break out, to break into our hearts so that we might be rebuilt to your people. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts to, to spend some time praying for some of these issues, I pray that you would connect with us in this moment. You would open our eyes to see the brokenness like you see it. And you prepare our hearts that we might be a prepared people to step into.